You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out about undernutrition in India. But before that, you'll have noticed some changes to BMJ.com this week. To talk about the redesign, I'm joined by David Payne, BMJ.com editor. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. So we've been garnering some feedback about this. Um, one of the questions that's been asked by a few people is, why have we done this redesign in the first place? Yes, a very good question, in fact. And uh, one thing I should just say to start with is that we, as well as redoing the uh, online BMJ, we've also got, also got a new print design, which has gone live this week as well. And uh, that was kind of deliberate. We wanted to to introduce the, t- the changes uh, in tandem with each other because, you know, that there's some colour coding, there's some referencing of each other. And we felt that it was a good time to actually do the two together. So the print um, the, the print changes are happening this week and the website as well. But, um, but it was 2007 we last redesigned BMJ.com. So it was quite a while back. And that isn't a reason in itself to change the website website. It's just that things have moved on then. We've got new things happening. Obviously, the podcast we didn't have four years ago. We do those every week now. Lots of video, um, a big army of bloggers, a new article series. So we felt that the the design needed a bit of a refresh and more space to accommodate all those things. Three years ago, we started publishing um, online daily. So we're effectively a daily changing website now. And that's a very important development. And we felt that the last design wasn't really sort of um, playing to to the strength of that. So this, this new design, hopefully, will have quicker links to all those headlines that we're posting on a daily basis. So it's both to to make the most of new content and to make the most of uh, new technology. Absolutely, yes. What's the main changes that have come about? Yes, um, I suppose I could start by talking about what we haven't changed. I mean, we're conscious that our readership is very busy, you know, very busy clinicians, very busy academic researchers, policy makers. So we've actually kept the top navigation the same, which is the home um, news, research, education, comment. The only change being um, there's a section that has our podcasts and videos on there, which we've renamed multimedia. And as you said, the podcasts now sit within the main bmj.com site, which means they're much more searchable, much more visible. And uh, and on obviously the archive tab where you get all the stuff going back to 1840 and past print issues and online table of contents. So so that's actually stayed the same. But... um at the article level, we know 80% of our traffic lands there. We wanted to simplify that look slightly. It was getting kind of cluttered and complicated. Mm. So we've introduced some tabs. So you now see the article. You now see rapid responses to that showing in a separate field. Um, and there's also article metrics, which is another introduction we've had. So you can see instantly what impact a paper has had. You can see how many um, uh, abstract or full text or PDF views it's had. Uh, social media is something that's bigger now than it was four years ago. So there's more prominent links to our Facebook, uh, to Facebook and to Twitter. So if you want to tweet one of our articles, that's much more easier to do or say mm. that you like it via your Facebook page. Uh, so those kind of changes were, were happening anyway and they were on the old site, but we've just made them a little bit more prominent now. And streamlined the whole process. Absolutely. So is that it for now? Well, no, is the answer. We've uh, Obviously, there are some glitches to sort out. Uh, I know change can be very um, unsettling for people, you know, even websites. Uh, uh, so we've been collecting feedback. We've had some very interesting stuff in. I'm, I'm just writing a blog as we speak, actually, that uh, outlines some of the feedback that our readers have given us and what we're doing to address that. So between now and Christmas, there will be two weekly releases, which effectively means that we'll upload some bug fixes and some little changes and tweaks to the design based on the feedback we've got. So that'll happen every fortnight until Christmas. And then we've also got a programme for 2012. So there's lots of changes we want to make in 2012. And that shouldn't frighten the horses. It's actually, you know, new series, new ideas. We've got new ways to promote our content. So you won't see any more radical um, redesigns, hopefully, for the foreseeable future. This has been a project that's gone for uh, well over a a year and a half now. So we, we just needed to get the site live and we were confident on Tuesday 
Tuesday evening when it went live here UK time that it was in a state that um, that, was, that was good uh, and we, we stand by that otherwise we would have taken it down if there were lots of problems but uh, there, there will be some changes uh, possibly you know some targeting of pages specific territories in the in the world where we know we're very popular and uh, maybe some more specialty collections perhaps some personalization but uh, watch this space is uh, my advice to any of our listeners sure and if you want to know any more about that uh, David and Fiona Godley our editor have put a little video together which is online and explains everything and as David said we're collecting feedback at the moment and you can find the way to do that on our homepage. This week, a cluster of articles in the BMJ draws attention to undernutrition in India. To talk about this, I'm joined by Tessa Richards, who edits our analysis section. Hi, Tessa. Hello. Well, of course, globally, there can be few more pressing problems than undernutrition, which accounts for over a third of deaths in children under five and around 11% of the total global burden of disease. Most of the world's malnourished children live in South Asia, and India is home to a third of them. The analysis paper in this week's issue by Lawrence Haddad, director of the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton, draws attention to this disconnect between India's impressive economic growth over the past 15 years and its persistently high rates of childhood undernutrition. The latest National Family Health Survey showed that 40% of children were underweight and that India won't reach its Millennium Development Goal target to halve the proportion of underweight children by 2015 until 2042, which is in marked contrast to China, which has already reached its goal, and Brazil, which is expected to do so by 2015. Haddad discusses the underlying factors which determine undernutrition, including economic growth, governance, agriculture, food security, the provision of food to infants, the power and status of women, access to clean water and sanitation. It's a complex picture. But he concludes that probably the main reason for India's failure to improve its childhood undernutrition rates is poor governance and that India needs to establish a national nutritional strategy. In a linked editorial, Srinath Reddy, president of the Public Health Foundation, agrees with this view. For too long, he says, nutrition has been seen as an orphan child for which no department has assumed responsibility. India, he says, needs an effective multi-sectoral platform for consultation and coordination of state-level action. He also makes the point that because the growth in India's economy has not been pro-poor, Income inequality remains high. In China, of course, the emphasis on, there was an emphasis on equity which preceded its economic growth. He also points out to the problem with rising food prices which have increased the number of people who are vulnerable to undernutrition and the need to try to contain food prices and maintain food security. Veena Rao, who advises the nutrition mission in the state of Karnataka, has written a commentary to the analysis paper in which she underlines that tackling childhood undernutrition requires a strong focus on the intergenerational cycle. That is, the nutrition of young girls, women and pregnant mothers and infants under two. A third of adult women in India have a low body mass index and 28% of infants born are of low birth weight. Rao agrees with Reddy that the first priority should be improve poor people's access to nutritious food, 
the coverage of the existing food programmes is patchy. She also points to the need for a public education programme about the importance of an adequate consumption of nutritious food, particularly from conception for the first thousand days. The wide availability of consumer goods means that some poor families opt to spend money on televisions and mobile phones rather than nutritious food. Thanks, Tessa. And last week, uh, Tessa and I talked to Vina Rao about how her state, Karnataka, is trying to tackle undernutrition. One of the points that, uh, that you make, Vina, is that per capita availability of food grains and consumption of food grains is declining and that food um, you've got double-digit sort of food inflation. So how much of this is a question of food insecurity? Oh, yes, it's completely a question of food, food insecurity. And we have data to show that at least 30% of our population do not get even 70% of the required dietary intake. So that was a given, and it's a given which seems to be accepted by all concerned. I have never heard anyone talk about it, whether in the government of India, in the planning commission, in in the Department of Women and Child Development, or in the Department of Health. So we are in a state of perfect denial about it. The only place it has been recognized and the entire strategy for addressing malnutrition has been built upon this as one of the causes, and therefore it has to be made up by supplementation, is the nutrition mission in Karnataka. You can go through any of the, web, you know, any of the websites you want. You will never find an admission of this by anybody in India. In Brazil, President Lula da Silva came into power on a platform of announcing zero hunger. How much of this is, do you think is due to lack of initiative centrally? I am no longer in government service, so I can speak very freely. Absolutely, there is no political priority given to it in government of India, where it is very, very essential. First of all, as you know, this is a federal setup, and getting an integrated strategy in place would require a huge amount of administrative skill, administrative stamina. We need very, very high-level leadership, which can only be from either the Prime Minister or the Planning Commission. But at the state level, uh, you managed to get this comprehensive nutrition mission kind of going. How did you do that? And in fact, okay, let me tell you, I had gone for something totally different. You know, I had gone to meet uh, my colleagues there. I come from the Karnataka Garda of the Civil Service. Mm-hmm. And I had retired. And they had read my paper. They were desperately wanting to do something about this issue. And they said, why don't you do something? And um, Chief Secretary arranged for an intersectoral meeting where I made a presentation. And the Chief Minister got convinced about it. He made an announcement in his budget speech and thereafter then the process started and now all the financial administrative processes have been completed. The NGOs have been selected and I think we should be on actual takeoff mode very soon in the next two months. And as I said, I was just very lucky that very positive-minded bureaucrats were sitting in positions where they had to take decisions. Mm. Vina, nutritional programs traditionally provide nutritional support, high-calorie food, maybe micronutrient supplements, things like that, often aimed at 
children in particular. Um, you, however, target children and adolescent and adult women to try and break the, the cycle of malnutrition that perpetuates this problem. Because you see, since the problem is intergenerational, unless you address these three groups simultaneously, the gains made by addressing one group will be lost because the next link is not addressed, which is so logical mm. because uh, obviously if there is better fetal nutrition in the last three or four or five months, the health of the newborn will be, the nutritional status of the newborn will be much better. So, you know, as we say in India, you don't need any wisdom to understand this. But the thing is, part of the problem is that the solution is so simple that nobody takes it seriously. Absolutely. And you know, if I was, yeah, if I was going to the prime minister and telling him that, listen, I have to make a spaceship to go to the moon, you know, and I have technology agreements to do, everybody would take me very seriously. But if I go to him and tell him that, listen, a child of six months needs complimentary food, he'll probably look at me and say that what's so difficult about that? Why the hell are you coming and bothering me about it? Mm. So it really does sound like you're focusing very much on women, but both you know to to increase their nutrition, but also uh, as education. I have done this in Maharashtra, and the results were phenomenal. I have done it in two very very under you know chronically malnourished blocks in Maharashtra. The results were absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I think it was just four or five months after the program started that the the, the uh, percentage of low birth weight babies, it just dropped. Infant mortality came down. Everything, everything improved. And of course, uh, the weight of adolescent girls improved. And uh, another thing was that this has to be monitored very meticulously. So we are having an online system. You know, these are the things we are doing right now. So we are having an online monitoring system for each of the... Uh, beneficiaries. Is there any evidence from comparative state data that in states where women's status is is greater, that then they are more empowered, that uh, rates of childhood nutrition are are less? Absolutely. In fact, uh, the National Health um, and Family Survey gives, uh, you know, it gives absolutely incontrovertible evidence that there is a direct correlation between uh, women's education and um, child health and nutritional status. Um, and that is very well laid out. And that is why you have states like Kerala, where women are much more empowered than in other parts of the country. Their education levels are much higher. And the nutritional status and the mortality rates, etc., are much better than the rest of the country. That correlation is very well made out. So um, as far as Karnataka is concerned, it's a mixed bag because we have some areas where women's status is much better than in other areas. You know, we have, uh, we have tribal belts, then we have uh, very arid and semi-arid areas where irrigation is limited and uh, food security is much less. So, you know, we have a mixed bag, but the correlation is established between um, uh, female empowerment and health and uh, nutritional status. To what extent do you think it's um, 
vital that the public uh, health experts come together with experts in agriculture so you get intersectoral cooperation to tackle um, undernutrition because there seems to be a lot of interest among the agricultural sector to uh, for innovative new foods, biofortification, improved crop yields, less wastage of crops. I mean, do you think that... Can, it, greater intersectoral cooperation would help tackle this problem? Absolutely. I agree with you completely. <clears throat> and we have started this initiative in Karnataka also. I think I sent you maybe some minutes of some meeting or something like that. <clears throat> we are trying to get these two sectors together. That is extremely important. Uh, and just another point I'd like to make since you have spoken about you know, the nutrition experts and uh, agriculture, we really don't have a strong lobby of nutritionists in India. We have a lot of doctors, public health doctors, but nutritionists per se, no. And that is perhaps one of the reasons that, you know, there's no strong lobby which is pushing for this subject. One more point, I promise. Sure. You know, we have a very negative market environment as far as nutrition is concerned. Uh, I have spoken to the private sector. I've been talking to them for the last five years, almost pleading with them to come out with some sort of an energy food for the poor when they are sick or, you know, girls who are anemic or if somebody is bedridden. And we have a lot of very nutritious, uh, low-cost, cereals which are grown in rural areas but I am not able to understand and there's a huge market I'm not able to understand why they are not coming out with it presently except for Horlicks and Complan which is very expensive for poor people there is nothing today available to them in the market which they can use if their child has diarrhea or if the child is ill or if a girl is ill or whatever great um, thank you very much for uh, for that, um, it's thank very you, interesting you, to hear what's going on on the ground there. And as we said, those articles are available now on bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.